Welcome back once again. And uh, this has been a, an absolutely extraordinary uh, conference uh, so far. And I think all of us uh, agree that uh, the presentations of, of, of each of them has been remarkable. And I think that uh, Cardinal uh, Dolan's remarks will be making uh, news headlines, a number of things he said. We're very fortunate now to have, uh, as part of the broader Hudson Institute team, Walter Russell Mead, who is a distinguished scholar in American strategy and statesmanship at Hudson. Walter is simply one of the most astute observers of American foreign policy. He was praised by no less than the New York Times Book Review for having one of the liveliest minds on American foreign policy today. We won't hold that against you. Uh, Walter serves as the James Chase Clark uh, Professor at, uh, in International Affairs at uh, Bard College. He is the editor-at-large of the American Interest Magazine, where he writes his uh, influential blog, Via Medea, which is must-reading in Washington on both sides of the political aisle. Uh, he's the author of numerous noted books, uh, including Special Providence, which won the uh, Lionel Gelber Award, which looked at uh, various... Uh, strands of American foreign policy, and Walter is someone who cares very deeply about uh, religion, about religion's influence in American foreign policy, and about uh, religious liberty. His father, Lauren Mead, is, uh, as many of you know, a very noted uh, Episcopal cl uh, cleric and someone who uh, very freely speaks his mind, as does his son. Walter is going to offer his reflections on what the crisis in the Christian communities of Iraq means for American grand strategy, what it says about American grand strategy, and what we need uh, to do to try to uh, make the situation better. Without any further ado, I'm delighted to turn it over to Walter. All right. Well, it's uh, great to be here. Although I can't say it's great to be following an incredibly eloquent and forthright cardinal. Um, uh, you know, my dad gave me a lot of advice about a public speaking career, um, you know, as a, as a priest when I was growing up. Um, but one thing he never told me, since we're Anglicans, I guess he never learned it, is never follow the cardinal. Um, but I am going to keep that in mind from here on out. Um, and I guess in an ecumenical spirit, I want to welcome also my nephew by marriage, uh, a Catholic priest, uh, uh, Father Jonathan Duncan, who came, swam the Tiber, and is now a priest in the personal ordinariate. So in my family, we now, somehow, we've gotten a little bit more ecumenical. Father Duncan is up there, and uh, glad he could be here. Um, all right. I've been asked to speak on the strategic implications and strategic choices of the situation of Christians, particularly in Iraq and Syria today. Uh, it's a difficult and not a particularly cheerful assignment. Uh, it's one of these subjects that uh, the, the more deeply you study it, the more formidable the obstacles appear the greater the dangers, the graver the situation of these communities appear, but it's a necessary thing to study. Uh, and developing a strategic view of this situation involves getting a little bit beyond the headlines of the day and, and the current events and trying to think about the historical roots of the situation, to look at what people in the past have tried in similar situations, make some kind of analysis of how well or how poorly those various strategies have worked, try to put this current situation in a broader context, and then think about what kinds of action or strategy we could choose today that might have some kind of, of positive effect. And the first place, we, first thing we need to do is to look at this situation in the context of perhaps the greatest tragedy in human history, certainly that we know of in the modern world. I think of this as the great catastrophe. If you look at 
sort of Eastern Central Europe and the modern Middle East in the 1820s, what you basically saw was three large multinational, multi-confessional states. The Austrian Empire, the Russian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire. If you look at that part of the world today, you see roughly 35 states. The number fluctuates and depends on how you count them. Um, And most of those states are now relatively homogenous, both ethnically and religiously. And the process of the transformation of these multinational, multi-confessional empires into ethnic nation states and other similar things has involved the death of a hundred million or more people, tens of millions of people driven from their homes, uh, millions slaughtered in a whole variety of, of murders and and ethnic violence, and enormous movements of refugees. Uh, This is something that we've seen. We've seen it happen. Uh, Christians have done it to Muslims, particularly as Ottoman power faded in the Balkans, and literally hundreds of thousands of Muslims were driven from their home or massacred Uh, by Greeks seeking revenge, Bulgarians seeking revenge, other battles for territory. Uh, As Russian power moved down the Caucasus, you also saw this kind of revenge killing, but, uh, and and sort of this, what is sometimes referred to as the Circassian genocide. Roughly one in 20 people who live in Anatolia today, the uh, modern Turkey, are descended from people who fled the, the Balkans between about 1870 and 1914. So this remains a living memory there. Um, And of course you have a great deal of violence that was was and is Muslim on Christian. Armenian genocide, massacres throughout the Balkans by Turks at various stages, by Ottoman forces in these wars, a series of genocidal murders, uh, sometimes affecting the communities that are in danger today, Earlier in the 20th century, the fall of the Ottoman Empire unleashed this kind of tragedy. This has happened over and over and over again. If we think about, if we try to to wrap our heads around this, and it's so big and so important that we sometimes have a hard time seeing it as one thing, this great catastrophe. We talk about the problems of the Jews culminating in the Holocaust. We talk about the problems of the Armenians and that genocide. We look at this problem or this ethnic conflict, the Turkish-Greek struggles in Cyprus today and so on, and we tend to see, see each of these in isolation. And while each of these conflicts certainly does have its own dynamics and its own roots, it is also part of a pattern of violence and conflict that has engulfed a significant part of the human race for more than a hundred years. And if we don't observe and think about these patterns, we will probably not be very successful. We may well end up repeating many of the failed strategies that people have tried in the past, because frankly, dealing with with these rivalries and conflicts and their consequences has been one of the major preoccupations of international great power diplomacy going back centuries. In fact, the first known known treaty, uh, international treaty that had a minority rights provision was, was, was from 1774 when the Russian Tsar got the right to intervene on behalf of Orthodox Christians in the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman Sultan had the right to intervene on behalf of Muslims in Crimea. Uh, There there had been treaty after treaty after treaty, negotiation after negotiation after negotiation on this subject, involving power after power after power, There has also been genocide and ethnic cleansing and genocide and ethnic cleansing and bitter, bitter fratricidal conflict 
over and over and over again. The most foolish thing we could do is to try to deal with this situation today without some consciousness of the literally scores of failed efforts in the past to deal with essentially similar issues. Well, if we think, I I think of these three empires as an imperial zone. And if you looked at their condition before the wars of national liberation and autonomy began, you, you saw some interesting similarities. You would see all over, scattered throughout these empires many different populations living together mostly harmoniously, uh, incidents of occasional friction and so on. But, but it was not a melting pot, an American-style melting pot, Um, Each people would live under its own laws, its own customs, so that Greek subjects of the Ottoman Empire would live under orthodox ecclesiastical law and in sort of personal matters and so on disputes within the community. They would be handled by the authorities of that community. Bulgarians the same, Jews the same, Muslims and so on the same. So you'd have people on the same street with different laws, different identities, and also often different economic levels. So that it was very common, you'd have peasants who speak one language and have one religion, and then you have aristocrats and landlords who have a different language and a different religion. In a lot of the Balkans, you had Turkish overlords with Orthodox peasants. In Hungary, you had Magyar overlords, Hungarian overlords, Romanian peasants, and on and on, in sort of an infinite variety. But then in all of the small cities and towns of the area, too, you'd have Germans, Jews, Armenians, Greeks, who, were, uh, who had various commercial trades. Usually, each ethnic group would specialize in certain lines of business. And somehow this whole system worked. Um, But it was a little bit more like today's caste system in India than than people having a real sense of sort of fellow feeling. Well, as modernization begins to... Oh, the other thing is, by the way, all of these empires were absolute and absolute religious autocracies in theory. The Ottoman Sultan was the Caliph of Islam. The Russian Tsar was the champion of orthodoxy. And certainly the Austrian Habsburg emperors thought of themselves as the protectors of Roman Catholicism. Everybody had a religion, and in theory everybody was an autocrat, But in practice, the distances were long, the bureaucracies were weak, the officials were corrupt. In practice, these things were very flexible. And that was was the way people lived. With industrialization, with modernization, with the spread of printing, frankly to some degree because of Western missionaries coming in with printing presses, national consciousness begins to rise among these groups in much the way it did in Western Europe earlier, where where the French discover themselves as citizens of France. And then they invade Spain, at which point the Spaniards discover themselves as citizens of Spain. Um, And so when nationalism hit this imperial zone, it worked out very differently from places like France, where just about everybody in France was French. That's not the case. In the extreme, you had groups like the Armenians and the Jews and the Roma, or the Gypsies, who really weren't a majority in much of anywhere significant. Armenians were a majority only in a very small district around Yerevan, much smaller than the modern state of Armenia, but were a large minority elsewhere. Jews were the majority in Salonika, the modern city Thessaloniki in Greece, where there are essentially no Jews now, and also for much of the 19th century in Jerusalem itself, which was a rather small place. 
but nowhere else. They were a scattered minority, and the gypsies, as today, have no homeland. Others, like the Romanians, were a demographic majority in in an area, but there were lots of other people in there, too. And so the rise of nationalism, often linked to religious values, meant essentially, as as we're going to become Romania, we can no longer be governed by Turkish infidels or Magyar oppressors. And you would get wars of national liberation that were wars of peoples. And a war of peoples is a much uglier thing than a war of states or a war of cabinets. You know, 18th century European dynastic wars, Frederick the Great is fighting Maria Theresa over who owns Silesia. The Silesian peasants don't really care that much. You know, it's like, whoever wins, I'm going to have to pay taxes. Other than that, life will somehow go on. We just want you to stop. All right. But when it's a war of Greeks against Turks, Bulgarians against Serbs, Armenians and Turks, Kurds and Turks, that's a war of people. We saw this in Western Europe with the war, Napoleonic Wars in Spain, where it becomes a popular insurrection. Look at those horrendous Goya paintings of what that war was like, where there was a viciousness and a passion. And in a war of peoples, by the way, it's not just the armies of the enemy who become your target, but the people. You want to kill them, you want to drive them out, Women, you know, not innocent non-combatants in a war of peoples. They are the wombs of your enemies, the source of those troops. And so horribly often, over and over again, these wars become wars of extermination or wars of expulsion. And it would take more time than we have today to list the mass expulsions and mass murders that marked 19th and 20th century European history and Middle Eastern history. Now, just as one example of how, of what an enormous change these wars made, Constantinople in 1900 had a majority Christian population, Armenians, Greeks, and many others. Uh, The last mass expulsions of Christians, Greek Christians, came, I think, in the 1960s. Um, But ultimately, um, now it's it's 99% Muslim. But again, you know, there used to be a lot more Muslims in Serbia than there are now. We should, we we need to remember that in these wars of religion and of popular wars, there's, there's no innocent side and no predominantly criminal side. From time to time, as circumstances dictate, one or the other is the murderer or the murderee. But everybody has taken, has taken a turn, except for, I'm afraid, some of the small and weak communities who are now uh, face-to-face with this kind of conflict. Um, now, by, ni- by about 1950, things at least had temporarily settled down. Most of these countries in, 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 these, in this imperial zone had gone through the wrenching process of expulsion, mass murder, uh, war that gave them more or less hom- ethnically homogenous boundaries. Everybody had grudges. The Hungarians wanted Transylvania back. You know, the Bulgarians uh, want the Dobrugia. The Romanians feel that. Moldova, the theft of Moldova by Stalin was the great crime of the 20th century, and, and on and on and on. Everybody had a list. But by and large, the boundaries were there. And there were four major countries in this imperial zone at that time where the sorting out hadn't happened. And since frozen in time was something more like the mixed patterns of the past. The Soviet Union was the largest Um, uh, Iraq, Turkey, and somewhere in my, oh, uh, sorry, not Turkey, Syria and Iraq, Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union. 
And then, of course, in the, you know, in the 1990s, the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia fall apart, and exactly the same things start to happen there. The violence in the Caucasus, uh, the violence in ex-Yugoslavia is precisely what ha- has been happening for 150 years all over this region. And we, most of us here are old. I have a few of my students here who may not be old enough to remember, but most of us here well remember how, how horrendous this violence was, how engaged the world's diplomatic community became, and how fiendishly, fiendishly hard it was to stop these conflicts. And indeed, some of them really we'd have to describe as frozen rather than stopped. And how there were unspeakable atrocities committed in the course of them. This was, people acted as if this was new and unprecedented. It's standard operating procedure in this large part of the world and has been for a long time. So then, you know, in, after 2000, Iraq and Syria fell apart. The despotisms of Saddam Hussein and of, of, Bashir, of the Assad family uh, had, had held these, what are, what are essentially multi-communal states together by force and oppression, by and large, but by other things too. Um, and when, for very, when, when the Americans invaded Iraq, and then when Assad faced a popular rebellion and lost the tight grip on power, once again we saw this old pattern taking place. When the strong overarching power weakens, then the populations who had lived side by side um, are come into various forms of conflict. And these conflicts tend to be, again, people's wars, wars of populations rather than wars of states, with all that says for atrocity, violence, and grim, grim stakes. You now, I think, perhaps understand why I, why I was saying at the beginning of the talk this was not a cheerful subject to look into, but I hope you'll agree that it was useful. Well, let's now focus, you know, let's, let's move away from some of these larger issues and try to focus down on the question of the Christians. Um, and again, I... I Invite us all to remember that Muslim on Christian violence is only one aspect of this terrible historical tragedy. But it is an aspect, and obviously this is part of what we are, are facing today. Um, and the Christian minorities in the Middle East have been in the process of disappearing or, or diminishing now for well over a hundred years. Um, communities that were once large and flourishing are now hanging on by their fingernails. In some cases, this is due to emigration. Uh, in some cases, it is due to, uh, to violence. Again, the communities in, um, in Iraq and Syria who are facing violence today uh, faced extremely high levels of, of uh, genocidal violence earlier in the, at the, in the earlier years of the 20th century. And so these populations are smaller than they were, and they are um, uh, feel a fragility because, again, People who live in this region, while they may not have thought through everything that we've been talking about here this morning, have a kind of a, a folk memory and an understanding in their own communities of the past. And so there's a high level of fear, uh, a profound level of, of, of vulnerability, um, and it doesn't take a lot to bring memories back of the bad old days and to make people uh, begin on you know, both to panic and to prepare for violence. Um, in trying to survive, 
as these, as these Christian communities have tried to manage this situation. Um, there have been sort of several, several things they've done. Um, and they all have a price. Uh, so they have been, some of them have enjoyed more success than others. But we can see clear patterns of strategic choices that they've been made, that they've made. One of the most important uh, things that Christians did to try to survive in the, the Muslim and Arab Middle East was to enthusiastically support and even help develop the idea of a secular Arab nationalist identity. Um, in fact, some people blame, some people credit uh, American Protestant missionaries at the American University in Beirut for helping to foment this. And you can actually go back and read some of their, some of their uh, writings and correspondence where they believe that if you could get the Arabs to focus on a secular cultural Arab identity, history, customs, language, this would raise the status of Arab Christians, reduce the hostility, maybe make Muslims ultimately more open to hearing the gospel message if the Christian minority were sort of economically better developed but also more integrated into a secular Arab community. And if you look at the history of Arab nationalism, you'll find that many of the important intellectuals and political thinkers, including some of the most radical, were in fact Christian Arabs. Well, this helped a good deal, and in places like Iraq and Syria, it was a foundation of the Christian community's acceptance, at least by the political authorities, because both of those communities were, uh, both of those countries were under sort of officially secular Arab nationalist governments under both Saddam Hussein and the, and the Assads in the Ba'ath Party. In the same way, it helped in Egypt where uh, cops could join Nasser's nationalist revolution. There was always friction and so on, and not everybody believed it, but it was a way to work together. And so one problem that Christians in the Middle East now face is that secular Arab nationalism has been discredited among many Arabs. It's the failure of many of the secular Arab regimes, um, uh, to, to get the kind of development that the secularists promised has caused many political thinkers and activists in the Arab world who 30 or 50 years ago would have thought of themselves as secularists um, has caused them now to think of themselves as Islamists. And this tends to marginalize Christian communities and makes it much harder for Christians to participate in the general life of the area. And we can see in Egypt and we can see in other countries where the collapse of Arab secular nationalism has undermined the place that Christian communities had tried to um, work, work out for themselves. Another thing they've tried to do, these communities, is to find a foreign protector. Um, you know, uh, there's a long history. Uh, in, the, in the Ottoman days, the French claimed the right to protect the Catholic subjects of the Ottoman em Empire. The Russians claimed the right to protect the Orthodox. The British, who wanted to mess around in the Ottoman Empire, were very disconcerted to find there weren't that many Protestants in the Ottoman Empire, actually claimed the Jews as... Uh, uh, as sort of of special interest. And the Americans then joined along and also, even in the 1840s, the Americans were asserting an interest in protecting the Jews of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, I, I'm afraid that scholars like John Mearsheimer would have a hard time finding where the Israel lobby was in those days, but I'm sure they're looking. So um, the trouble with this strategy, there are two troubles with this strategy. Three, really. One is the foreign protectors are usually kind of lazy and disinterested. You know, they'll, they'll intervene to help you if it suits their agenda, but they're not going to break a sweat for you. So you really can't trust, ultimately, these, these foreigners. Another problem is the great power politics get into it. 
So if the Russians want to come in and protect the Orthodox, this will make the French and the British think the Russians are horning in and expanding their role, and so they'll resist it, even if, in fact, the Orthodox might have used the help the Russians were trying to provide. This is not hypothetical. This happened. But also, by being identified as, as people of interest to Western imperial powers who are actively trying to break up the Ottoman Empire and dominate it, the, the Christian and Jewish subjects of the Ottomans make themselves odious to their neighbors. And they are seen as the, the enemy within, the fifth column within. This is part of the dynamic behind the Armenian Genocide. The Turkish and Ottoman belief that the Armenians, not entirely unjustified, were wishing for a Russian victory and trying to help the Russians win in World War I. And you can see how this vicious circle can go on. The the more suspicious the majority community is, the more reason the minority has to want to get involved, find a protector, and the more ardently it clings to the protector, the more it alienates the majority and creates suspicion, which then leads to even more reason to want to find somebody to protect me from these people who are hating me more and more. And so this vicious circle, vicious cycle, uh, has engulfed people on more than one occasion in this very dark history. Um, And then another choice that Christian communities have made in trying to negotiate survival in very unfriendly terrain has been to make a deal with a strong man um, who can protect you. You don't have the political or military power to protect yourself, but if you cut a deal with Sisi in Egypt, if you cut a deal with, uh, with Assad or with Saddam, then you can find some protection as long as this regime stays in power. And this is a very important dynamic both in Syria and in Iraq, where uh, Christians, again, both Assad and Saddam oppressed everybody. Nobody got freedom. Nobody was really safe. But Christians worked with those regimes in some ways because it did create a certain space, and you do have to make a living and you have to work. Um, so, uh, And it helped, by the way, that again, uh, in, in Iraq, Saddam was a member of the Sunni minority which used a secularist rhetoric to legitimate its dominance of the majority, of the Shia majority. In, this, in a mirror image way, Assad in Syria had an ostensibly secular philosophy to justify his domination over the Sunni majority. And in both cases, the Christians and other minority communities were sort of useful allies to the power to demonstrate their secularism, but also to increase their demographic basis a bit. Again, the problem with this, this strategy, you know, worked for some time. And as I said, both in Iraq and in Syria, the Christian communities survived better than they did in some other places. But um, ultimately, the strong man goes. And then you not only have the original communal tensions and religious tensions to deal with, but you were the hated henchman of the oppressor. And... You know, it's easy then to be scapegoated as the willing accomplices of the terrible criminal. Uh, And we can see some of this taking place in the region today. So, um, then if we try to look at a little bit more at some of the the specific strategic uh, situation today. You know, again, as I say, a lot of these dynamics are very, very old, but there are certain elements that are, that are a little bit more unique. The biggest one, it seems to me, and the one that is a little bit counterintuitive for some people to grasp, is that the core problem in the Middle East today, is, in terms of the general tone and, the, and, and level of violence, is not so much the Muslim-Christian violence that we are all justly concerned with, it's the 
sectarian Sunni Shia war among Muslims, which is creating enormous insecurity, but also because Iran is perceived at the moment by many, many Sunnis to be winning this competition, and which is also seems to be moving toward a breakthrough with the United States that will end the sanctions and further increase its ability to dominate the region, that you are seeing Sunnis, who are demographically the majority, getting the kind of garrison identity thinking. You find, for example, that, that there are people, not the governments in Saudi Arabia or other Gulf states, but wealthy, well-connected people with a certain credibility are starting to look at groups like ISIS as important ground troops in the struggle with, coming struggle with Iran. At least those people fight, um, is the thinking that people have. And so some of the financial flows between radical groups in the Sunni world and wealthy Sunnis that had been broken after uh, 9-1-1 have begun to come together. But also the sense among some Sunnis of being you know, trapped in this terrible position. Remember, in a part of the world where paranoia and existential fear and where me- being the victim and the loser can mean losing everything, and for millions of people has meant watching the slaughter of your families before they kill you. All right? There's tremendous insecurity, and it's easy for people to begin to embrace very radical ideas and to think in apocalyptic terms about the kind of world we live in. So, I think that's where we are. Um, And there's nothing pretty about it. Well, what have people done that has, you know, has, you know... (laughs) That might work. Uh, where has there been success? And it seems to me there are, there are two kinds of strategies that have allowed communities to continue to exist. Um, you can call the alternatives fort up or flee are basically the two strategies that work. Peacefully staying in place and hoping for better days is usually not a success. This is the, the, the German Jews in 1936, Armenians in 1912. It's not a smart move, generally speaking. Uh, so if you look at, you know, you can look at the Maronites in Lebanon. They forded up. They didn't start a state, but they armed themselves and prepared. Some of the wars they won, some of the wars they lost, and these were ugly wars of people with lots of atrocities all around. But the community has survived. There's the, they're the Kurds. Again, they haven't formed a state yet, but they have armed themselves and they have survived. And by the way, as an armed entity, you can do better with foreign allies than you can as an unarmed minority desperately hoping they'll be nice to you. And of course, there's the example of the Israelis who have forded up and survived in a world in which many minorities have not. And, and, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, by the way, has all the earmarks of these other conflicts. It is part of this catastrophe and needs to be understood in conflict, in context. And when people single out either the Israelis or the Palestinians and treat this as some unique thing... um, they are missing some of the most important realities that enable us to understand and I think view with a little bit more sympathy the dilemmas and and issues that both sides face. So, that would be my advice to these communities is to make a decision about whether you are going to, whether you are able, because part of this is demographic and numbers, Uh, and economic, whether you are able to arm yourselves and form, and you know, it's it's not just getting guns, it's having sort of organization that can develop and carry out policy and make and keep treaties and and have a strategy that people follow. 
You know, not just an assemblage of quarreling clans, but decision-making capability, a state, even if it's not diplomatically recognized, an entity that can work like a state. Um, And if you can do that, then you have a pretty decent shot at defending yourselves, although you have to be clever. You know, the Kurds actually had militias in 1915, and it didn't do them much good because they, uh, sorry, the Kurds, the Armenians, um, because they, they didn't have a good strategy for how to use their, their strength. Um, so you have to have a good strategy, but that is one option. The other option is to just get out. Um, you, you need to do, I think, one of those two. Speaking from the, uh, you know, then I'll say a couple of things about the possible implications of this for American policy um, and for international policy generally. And then we'll open the floor to, to questions and comments and discussion because I'm sure some people here have, have, have some things to say. Um, the first thing is it does seem to me that we do need to understand that some of the violence and unrest that we're seeing in the Middle East today is the result of a somewhat incoherent American policy vis-a-vis Iran and vis-a-vis the order in the Middle East. You know, uh, in general, when there is a strong overarching authority of some kind, these communal conflicts tend to stay within bounds. If people believe that somewhere out there there is a force that is willing and able to enforce certain rules and the status quo, then, um, then the temptation to go into this sort of vicious cycle of, of conflict is lessened. The United States seems to be stepping back from that role and even doing some things, you know, uh, if, 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 if our strategy really is to let Iran you know, take the lead here, or even to step back and let conflict between the Sunnis and the Shia, you know, keep our enemies fighting each other rather than ourselves, so American losses are low. I'm afraid that underestimates the dynamic of, the, of these conflicts, and that you can have a strategy that seeks peace and stability that creates war. Um, I would also, by the way, I think a temptation for some of the Christian communities, uh, particularly in in Iraq and Syria, may be to look at Iran and the Sunnis as possible outside protectors, Shia, possible outside protectors and allies. I think that's probably dangerous. I think the the consequences of sort of Sunni reaction are are greater than than some people understand. And also the, uh, you know, the the way in which the Iranian priorities will not necessarily be those of these, of these minorities. It's a, it's a dangerous step. Um, so the United States needs to come to some, make some decisions about what we think is important and what we think our role is. We should not, however, the international community should not overestimate its ability to stop these conflicts once they start or its will to intervene and effectively police them. Look at how hard it was to get a Western consensus in the Balkans and how many people had to die. I think to get the, get the West engaged in the hills and mountains of northern Iraq and parts of Syria I think would be significantly more difficult. The resistance to sending uh, NATO or UN, certainly U.S. troops on that kind of humanitarian issue, uh, thing would be very, very high. Uh, p- the public is not looking for humanitarian wars and what it perceives as an endless cycle of horror and atrocity. It's, it, it's not, the American public is not looking to stick its hand into the wood chipper anytime soon. So, um, we should not be giving false hope to people about our intentions. We should not try to imagine that we are more moral than we are or more focused than we are. And we should be thinking in very practical, clear terms about what policy outcomes are likely. Um, and then look, those of us particularly who have a care for the well-being of these people, 
need to think, okay, within the range of realistic options, what should we be doing and what should we be supporting? Um, but I think, uh, I, I think that Ford Up or Flee really are the two most viable alternatives. There's a chance that if people keep their heads down, the storm will pass and the community may be damaged but will survive. But I think these storms have a way of becoming more intense over time. And that may have been true in 1680, when if there was some kind of violence, just sort of wait for a while, things will calm down. But I think a new, new and much more dynam- dangerous dynamic has been unfolding in modern times, and I don't think it's finished yet. Anyway, those are some thoughts for me, and I wish I had something uh, more consoling or encouraging to say, but I feel an obligation to, to give you the truth as I see it with the bark off, as I gather Cardinal Dolan did earlier today. Thank you. Any questions? Yeah, do we have a microphone for questions? Or Yes, we do. Okay. So please. And remember, a question is normally a short comment that ends with a question mark <laughs> on a sort of a rising note. So let's try to do this because there are a lot of people who want to talk. Sir, thank you so much for your history lesson. It's very well appreciated. Um, will Israel attack Iran? Ha <laughs> Well, uh, of course, uh, you know, Yogi Berra once said, uh, prediction is always difficult, especially when it involves the future. And, uh, and in pundit school, they teach you it's always good to, to give a date and it's always good to give a number, but it's never good to give a date and a number. So unfortunately, I don't know the answer to that any more than anybody else. But I do think that what we're seeing is not just Israel, but countries like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the UAE, are not prepared to sit there passively while Iran reaches for a kind of regional domination. What they will do and how they will do it, um, you know, there have been some interesting news stories that suggest that Israel might be thinking that Hezbollah right now, which is overextended in Syria, Um, this might be an excellent time to deal with Hezbollah, which is seeking to become a larger threat to Israel. That is a blow at Iran and a very... Again, I think if there's one big failure, I think, that, that we in the U.S. made in other countries, it was failing to understand that if you want to go for nuclear negotiations with Iran, and I say, why not? Try. Um... You needed a strong Syria policy as the counterpart to an effective negotiation. That in trying to get, a, get control of Syria or keep Assad in control of Syria, Iran is essentially trying to build this famous Shia crescent that people talk about. Iraq, Syria, uh, Lebanon in this arc. Um, that, and this is a deadly threat to Israel. In some ways, it's a deadlier threat than nuclear weapons because Israel can deter, unless a true madman comes in, Israel can deter Iran through nuclear weapons. But um, this kind of thing, this, this is a, an existential threat to the Sunni world as it understands things, as well as to Israel. I don't think they're just going to sit back. If we had done something in Syria... I doubt you'd actually have seen the rise of ISIS in the way you have. I think you would not have seen um, some of the stresses on the Christian communities, both in Syria and in Iraq. I think we would be, and I think that we would really have a negotiation with Iran at that point if it's lost its grip on Syria. Is it willing to come to terms as one member of that region or not? And that could have been a very useful negotiation and actually a better legacy for the president than the one he's likely to have. Yes. Um, oh, well, let's wait for the microphone. In your, in your comments about um, forting up um, as juxtaposed to, I think, what you describe quite accurately is a reluctance on the part of Americans to stick their hands in the woodchopper, et cetera. 
would would the option of fording uh, by helping these people to build their forts, et cetera, um, and encourage the Saudis, such as we've seen, you know, has actually transpired to a degree. Is that something <clears throat> that you can see in American policy being sustainable? Yeah, we're, we're actually good at selling arms, uh, <laughs> even selling arms on credit, and we're good at training forces and so on. So that strikes me as something that people could ask for with some degree. You know, you make a big enough, make big enough noises, politicians always are looking for something they can do that won't make a lot of other people too unhappy, but will shut you up. And this strikes me as, as one of the outcomes that the American political process could support if it were engaged in sort of intelligently and thoughtfully and with a due understanding of all the various forces at work. But I think helping Christians in the Middle East protect themselves is not necessarily a, a loser proposition for this thought-provoking uh, talk. And if I may say, you did extremely well even after Cardinal Dolan. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, after what you said with respect to Soviet Union, the um, Yugoslavia, Assyria, and Iraq, I was thinking if, there are, if you know about or think, can think about other countries where something similar like these people wars might happen in the future, we have been discussing about what we can do to help things that broke? Are there things that might break in the future and where you can say that we should do something as well? Yeah, I think uh, one, of the, one of the miracles of the Middle East has been the survival of the cops in Egypt as well as they have. Not that they're not under a lot of pressure and have suffered a lot, but there seems to be a kind of an Egyptian, genuine Egyptian national identity that accepts cops as, part of, as a part of a we. So I think we should certainly be trying, we should do whatever we can to, to try to conserve that um, and, and work carefully with cops and with other Egyptians to try to further that. And that might be better than sort of a lot of democracy stuff that is harder to do. But look, look at what the news in Burundi today, where people are being killed and rioting in the street essentially as part of the Hutu-Tutsi war, that already caused, you know, led to the genocide in Rwanda and has led to a number of, of extremely catastrophic incidents of violence. We're actually beginning to see some of this bleed into Africa, parts of Africa. And particularly, by the way, where ethnic and tribal rivalries coincide with the increasingly sharp Christian-Muslim line in Africa you really could see in the 21st century the sort of spread of this zone of instability and popular conflict into sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so, yes, I do see this as a significant problem. Sir. Professor, can you talk to us as, from a Lebanese point of view, the we Lebanon, as you know, is a consensual democracy, Shiite, Sunni, and Christian. And you have about half of the Christians saying, you know, the Sunnis have not been that good to us. Let's try the Shiites. Yep. And so you have a divided Christianity, which from the patriarch's point of view, the Maronite patriarch, could work in our favor. Mm-hmm. Or in your bets, right. Yes. Or it could work, it could backfire. Now, he's not supporting one side or the other, but he's saying for the Christians who are allied with Shiites or the Christians who are allied with Sunnis, don't be used by them, but try to use your influence as a Christian to work with them towards a, a resolution for the Lebanon, Lebanon's government and also for the region's problems. Could you speak to that? Yeah. Uh, you know, Lebanon is, you know... it. it is a really interesting example of a country which has been to this abyss that I've described. Of the, you know, I can remember years ago somebody once said about Lebanon, in that country they don't even obey the law of the jungle anymore. <laughs> and, um, and, and has pulled itself back from that more than once, and yet where these, the, these tensions and the potential for future explosions, they're a permanent feature of life that all the, all the people, and as well as the decision makers, carry that knowledge with them through every day. 
And those of us who live in, other, in, in the U.S. and other parts of the world, when we encounter people from a country like Lebanon, it's important to understand that they're not necessarily looking at the world through the same lenses that we do because they have an experience and they have an awareness of existential dangers just inches below the surface that is very, very real. And my respect for people who, who work in that environment and try to build something humane and decent and, and that is somehow open to everyone who lives there is enormous. And, and congratulations to you on that. As far as how the Christians should handle this, uh, it's hard to say because I'm afraid, as has happened before for Christians in Lebanon, there are a lot of forces that are going to try to force you to choose and to commit yourselves. Um, and, uh, you know, Hezbollah in some ways, you know, if Iran continues to be ascendant, then the question becomes not whether do we try to equibalance between Hezbollah and the Sunni, but whether, in fact, we need to balance with, we need to accept Iranian Hezbollah leadership or we try to continue to maintain a balance between Sunni and Shia in which the Christians have more of a presence. And that is a very difficult question to answer, and it depends on a lot of imponderables, like what will happen in Syria. Someday, you, and, and really Lebanese politics cannot escape the Syrian context. So what will happen in, you know, some days we read in the paper that Assad has lost a few battles and maybe he's, he's breaking up and others, he's made some gains. And if Assad falls, then the Christians maybe have one set of options. And if he recovers or is succeeded by someone else who is recovering for the Alawites, you have another. And there's also, again, I think the, the real concern that, that there will be more Israeli intervention if Hezbollah is seen to be getting the upper edge. So I think you ha- I, I'm not sure that there is a single answer that one, it sounds like the, the patriarch is pursuing something of a wise strategy here of keeping his options open. Yeah? Yeah, in, in fact, he's not so much... Uh, right, right now, there's no, there's no president. Uh, yes. There's the, Mar- the, the Maronites are supposed to choose... Um, a candidate must be a Maronite, and the parliament is supposed to choose him. But there's two dynamics. There's the Shiite-Sunni dynamic, and then there's the personalities. Difficult, very two very difficult personalities. With lots of family and clan loyalties in conflict. And that's why, if you look at the eyes of the Maronite patriarch, you see a deep sadness. He has been arguing for them to choose someone. doesn't matter who. Just to choose someone, one out of 21 Arab countries that does not have, uh, that, that has a Christian leader, and we Christians can't settle. All right. But the, the issue is really strategic, and it's very, very big, and most people don't understand that. People think when, they, when, they, when certain Maronite politicians side with the Shiites that they're pro-Hezbollah. Right. Some of them are, but some of them are not. They're trying to trying to hedge their bet a little bit. So that's the challenge of Lebanon. So I just... Yeah, and and I think, uh, no, you're right about that. I do think that one possible opportunity for the Christians and uh, in Lebanon to look at is the degree to which the Saudis and the French seem to be working together. Uh, That may be a framework when you think of it. The traditional patrons of Lebanese Sunnis and potential and traditional patrons of Lebanese of the Maronites, perhaps there's a possibility for some kind of a framework there, and I certainly hope some people are exploring it. Saudi money, French diplomacy, and both of those countries pushing for some kind of stability in Lebanon that escapes Iranian hegemony. That's that could be a historic opportunity for Lebanon. I wouldn't let it go if I were in the, in the shoes of the Maronites without at least checking very carefully, looking under the hood and seeing what's there. Over here. Yes, sir. Thank you, Professor. I'm curious, why is the Shiite threat for hegemony in the Middle East such a danger 
when we're looking at the rise of, of, uh, of an Ottoman, neo-Ottoman state in Turkey, and we can look at history and, and see what, what that had uh, brought about for, for Syro-Chaldean and Armenian Christians, and, and the role of the Sunnis. I'm just curious, why is, why is Shia Islam considered such a threat when it's the Sunni, the violent extremist form of Sunni Islam, that has brought about Daesh and, and other extremist right. groups? Okay, well, first of all, I would not want to say, have anybody come away from here thinking that I think that there's something about Shiism that is malign in a way that, you know, there isn't a problem with Sunnism or other things. Part of what I've been saying is you can look at all of these religious communities and peoples, including Christians, and, and see something. Okay, well, I think the thing is that, that it is probably true that, that there's a handful of men in the Middle East who look in the mirror every morning and see a caliph looking back at them, and one of them is President Erdogan. Um, but I would say there that one thing to remember is that Turks don't seem to be very good at foreign policy, at least Erdogan doesn't. And, you know, sort of everything he touches turns to mud, a reverse Midas touch. And, you know, in that sense, I don't see... I, I, you know, the Iranian state, oh, Turkey in potential, is an enormous power, and as, as you note, dominated the, the region for centuries. But right now, it doesn't seem to have the capability of realizing its potential. Iran, on, on the other hand, has over, the dec- over decades built a very effective infrastructure of power and is moving very hard on it. Existentially, I agree with you that... that that anybody concerned about the long-term balance in the Middle East would look at Turkey and think hard about Turkey. I think the Saudis do. Yeah, I think in the Saudis are probably, you know, money can only take you so far. Um, uh, you know, I think, you know, you, you see this sort of divisions. The, the Sunni world acting together would be stronger than the Shia but the divisions in the Sunni world are extremely deep, and sort of it seems that each of them only has some of the capabilities that you would need to be effective. So basically, that's, I'm looking at balance of power issues, not religious dogma or something like that. Yes? Uh, can we get the microphone here? So. Oh, all right, I'm told this is the last, so make it a good one. Well, if you play out the balance of power that's obviously historically true among nation states. Now you would have Turkey, you would have the Sunni led by Saudi Arabia, you'd have Iran. How does the United States or the Western world have any impact on that from a long-term point of view other than to negotiate with all of them to find, try to find a modus vivendi? All right. Good question. Um, and what the U.S. has done since, you know, soon after the Second World War, as the British began to fade, reluctantly, um, the United States has sort of set boundaries. You know, sort of, you can go this far. I don't mean drawing lines on the ground necessarily, but saying the competition between states in the, in the region can go this far and no further. And when, for example, Nasser in Egypt was looking to try to build this kind of pan-Arab national enterprise, the U.S. tilted pretty heavily against him to defend the Saudis and so on. Traditionally, what the U.S. has done is a classic strategy of trying to make sure that no other country, whether in the region or out of the region, has the power to interrupt the flow of the region's oil to the rest of the world. And I should probably note here that there's some people who think that U.S. energy independence, and thank God it's coming, um, frees us from concern with the Middle East. That's actually not the case. Because, you know, ask yourself, what happened if, if some fine day we woke up and whoever was controlling the Middle East said, okay, no, no oil to China, no oil to Japan, no oil to Europe. What would happen to Wall Street that day? What would happen to the American financial system if the price of oil is $300, $500 a barrel? And so on. so our, the financial connection of the daily lives of Americans 
to a strategic balance in the Middle East in which the U.S. has the ability to ensure the stable commercial flow of oil to the world is unaffected by U.S. energy independence. Now, it may, that may be a harder thing to explain to the American people when they, don't, when they no longer perceive, and the perception was always erroneous to some degree, but they perceived it, a direct link between headlines in the Middle East and my gas price or the availability of gas. So it may be harder to get the Americans to understand the case for intervention. But nevertheless, I think an American foreign policy that seeks to prevent any one country from acquiring the ability to block the commercial flow of oil, it remains, uh, remains of vital interest to in the United States. Right now, there is only one country in the Middle East that, that seems to aspire to that, and it is Iran. And it is, so it seems to me, it is the strategic interests of the United States to counter Iran. That doesn't necessarily mean that we are interested in, in uh, arbitrating every difference between Bahrain and Kuwait, or you know, that we really need ultimately to be concerned about the government of Yemen, though right now we do because we've allowed this competition to get so out of hand. But that would, that would strike me as what we need to look at. All right, well, thank you all. I hope it was an interesting afternoon.